Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where tonight's going to be, or today's going to be a very interesting day, as it is each and every single week here at Talk Junkies. Um, if you're interested, it's been about two weeks since I've done a podcast, just kind of laying low and just take a little break. It's always nice to do that every once in a while. But last podcast, I had John Cox on. <clears throat> I definitely uh, checked that podcast out. It's not on YouTube. It's just going to be on Spotify and iTunes. And John just gets into, he's a citizen in Kentucky, and he got four pieces of legislation passed in Kentucky as a civilian. Now, he did have help behind him. It wasn't just him, but it's a grassroots movement in Kentucky. So John Cox, man, uh, keep up the good fight, man. That's awesome that a civilian's able to uh, sacrifice their time, their family, and get things done in their state so people are more free. Um, today's going to be a very interesting day. We haven't <clears throat> really had someone with this type of knowledge, uh, this wealth of knowledge to explain what it is we're going to be talking about. Um, a lot of it will be centered around COVID, uh, vaccines, viruses, and all those good types of things. His name's Mike Donio. He holds a bachelor's degree <clears throat> in biochemistry and molecular biology with a minor in chemistry from the University of Massachusetts and a master's degree in biotechnology with a concentration in biotechnology enterprise from John Hopkins. He's an accomplished scientist with 20 years of experience, including 15 years in biotech and pharmaceutical industry. Mike, how you doing, man? Thanks for joining. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on, man. Um, it's a weird landscape we live in today. I'm trying to wrap my head around all the things that are going on in the United States, and you can't really just pinpoint one thing because there's so many things coming at you at one time. Uh, but before we get into it, man, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey and how you got here, man. It, <clears throat> yeah, um, you know, it's been it's been a wild journey, especially the last couple of years. I mean, um, I had been a scientist for 20 years, as you as you said, I have degrees in biochemistry and molecular biology, and I have a, a master's in biotechnology. I have experience in virology, oncology, immunology, molecular biology, biochemistry, um, I, a pretty diverse array of experience, which made me quite unique in, in the industry. I spent a lot of my career in biotech and pharma. Um, a lot of scientists are, are highly specialized. I have always been someone who has been a skeptic, has questioned, not, not just gone along with the prevailing um, views and the the that that the science is settled and uh, kind of been a thorn in people's sides. But I managed to just stay in in the system and um, up until COVID hit and my company like the entire industry and even obviously beyond just the, the, the industry rolled out these mandates, um, to take the jabs. And I, uh, I was a senior scientist at a, at a biotech company, um, in the immuno oncology space. So this is developing antibodies to treat cancer and I refused to comply and they basically refused to employ me any longer. Um, and uh, that was in October of 2021. And, um, you know, it it rocked my world and flipped it upside down. But I've, um, I, I don't know, I just had faith that it was going to be okay and that that was the decision I needed to make. And um, I've got a fantastic family that supported me. And so it's it's been a wild journey. I've connected with a lot of incredible people along the way. And... Um, you know, I've been speaking out a lot like this, just sharing my perspectives on the current state of science and, and things, because I think it's important that people 
you know, can see into what's really going on behind the doors of the lab and the boardrooms and, you know, un, you know, and understand that it's not all that it's made out to be. If you just watch the news or listen to trust the experts, I mean, there's a lot more than, than meets the eye. And so, you know, I'm just trying to do my part and illuminate that a bit. And yeah. Rock on me. So for me, um, the two things real quick to that, in October of 2021, it, and I'm in the service service industry, you know, I'm a bartender right now currently, um, you know, it was January of that year where the federal government was going to try and roll out the whole country. Any employer that had over 100 employees, they were going to try and mandate the vaccine. Um, that was some scary stuff, man. And I think that um, there was a lot of pushback, obviously, because that didn't last too long. Um, people were definitely aware of the situation. I'm not entirely too sure of the percentage of people who have been vaccinated in the United States I think they venture out to say somewhere around 60 to 70%. I don't know how accurate that is. Um, but that was scary stuff, man. Yeah, that that is, I mean, that was really crazy. It was crazy enough just that, to think that they were mandating it in any way. And then to go that broad and that any company that had over 100 employees, I mean, that's that, that would have impacted I mean, there already were an insane amount of people that have been impacted and the system is so jammed up with people trying to challenge what's happened. But that would have just been to, to, to so many more degrees that that was just I mean, well, I think I, I, I think it's all horrific, but that was just, a you know. Yeah, no. And what they're doing now, and at least my opinion, is that they're putting it right out in front of our faces just to see what type of pushback there will be, to see if they're allowed or can get away with doing those things. Yeah, yeah. That almost seems like they were kind of testing to see how far they could go. Yeah. And clearly they, they hit a point where they, that, was, that was far enough that it was able to ignite a significant amount of outcry such that they had to push, they had to roll it back. But, I mean, clearly they, they were pushing that boundary. Oh, yeah. So before we get into just the, 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 the dirty details of just the science community in general, um, I wanted to play this clip, but I, you know, I, I just was short of time. I wasn't able to do it. But there was a clip of, uh, and I'm sure you know who Neil deGrasse Tyson is. So he was on, I think it was, I mean, he's been on multiple podcasts, but he, he had said to this one gentleman, um, he's like, well, why don't you trust, <clears throat> why don't you trust certain scientists, specifically Peter McCullough? And I know you know, probably know who Peter McCullough is. And he's like, we're not, and Neil deGrasse Tyson said, he's like, I don't care if he's a leading expert. He's like, I don't care if he's a leading expert. He's like, we're going to go with the, the consensus of the science community. And to me, it's like, how does that make any sense? Whenever he's like, you have to listen And there's multiple Peter McCullough. So why wouldn't you listen to just a broad, like multiple people in that landscape? So I guess my question to you is, what do you say to that? Whenever Neil deGrasse Tyson says, we're not going to listen to someone who's a leading expert. We want the consensus of science. What does that even mean? Well, yeah, that means, I mean, what is the consensus? It's like some kind of agreed upon, uh, you know, like what has been agreed upon by a, a plurality of scientists in a given area that this is what is acceptable and anything else is not or something. I mean, I, like that's what I've kind of been against my whole career is like, I'm not going to just accept the consensus. Um and I think even just to pick your favorite expert and listen to them is is dangerous too. You should listen to a lot of different people, and then at the end, verify yourself and uh, and decide yourself what you 
choose to believe because I, I think I've seen a lot of people that, you know, have seen that certain people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or a Fauci or something like, yeah, we don't want to follow those experts, but then they've just flipped to a different, you know, they've just changed experts or changed whatever to find someone that resonates or shares things differently or whatever. And we, we have to be careful because everybody has some kind of a, a bias or an agenda and very few actually care about what's important to, to you as an individual, what's best for your family, for your own personal health and well-being. And only you truly know that and value that. And so, I mean, this whole idea of accepting the consensus is just, uh, that's just like the same kind of thing to me as like this idea that we trust the science, that it's already settled, that we must, you know, it's kind of this turning it into a religion that you've got, you've got to just accept what has been dubbed acceptable by those in the high towers of science and anything else is just blasphemy, right? Or something. Right. So how do we even get to a point like that? I feel like there, there had to have been a golden era, but may, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe it's just always been this way. Uh, and there wasn't, you know, uh, technology or media to kind of sh show its, its bright, uh, bright shining lights on it. So, um, I, you, you know, back in the 70s and, and even probably the 60s, there were big, big pushes for vaccines. You had polio, chickenpox, you know, uh, the list goes on. I mean, I mean, I guess maybe from what I hear, it was maybe seven to eight vaccines in like the 70s, 80s and 90s. And then they've slowly gotten more and more. But how do we get to a point where we, we can't necessarily trust the science anymore? Yeah, well, I mean, what we've what we've seen is that so much of what is claimed to be true and verifiable in science. And that's because of certain, again, ways in which science has kind of self-verified it and positioned things like using peer review to claim like, oh, well, once it's peer reviewed and it's published, then it has to be true. But the problem is most published scientific findings are more likely to be false than not. Most findings, papers can't be replicated. Replication is critical to verifying or increasing the likelihood that a given finding is true. If, if that's the case, then we have a house of cards. We, we don't know what is actually true and can be verified and what is not. And I've seen firsthand where stuff gets published and it's, you know, it's a, it's, one experiment or two experiments. I mean, and then you try to repeat stuff and it doesn't work. And I mean, science is from an insider's perspective, it's, it's a mess. I mean, but it's, we've put up like these facades and we've said, okay, anything that's peer reviewed and comes out of certain groups or certain institutions is basically almost unchallengeable. And it's led us to a point where we, accept all this stuff without even questioning it. So, but the truth is that we don't know what's actually valid or true. And it's more likely than not that most of it's not valid. And, so, I, and I think like in just going through the public education system, um, and that's a whole other can of worms in itself, I think you were kind of taught that at least, that you know, not, you're not always going to have it right. And, and in science, things are always changing and things are always adapting, so you're never truly ever 100% going to have it for certain. But how, how does the peer-reviewed 
uh, process work? Yeah. So you, yeah, you, um, you'd like to believe by the name peer review that it's literally someone's peers that are in the same field that are <clears throat> reviewing your work and giving real, a real unbiased review and feedback and trying to put forth the best, <clears throat> you know, most valid data possible, but that that's not the case. The reviewers are selected by the editor of the journal. The journals in many cases are funded, especially the big ones, um, you know, by pharmaceutical companies and others like, so there's vested interest in these things. And, you know, it's not really actually peer review. There's no, um, when you submit a manuscript to be reviewed and published, they basically accept it as if you've already verified the data as what you're sending them. You're basically signing off saying, we're good with this. You just critique it and see if you think our, you know, what we're saying stands up to some level of scrutiny. And, you know, I mean, there's different flavors of reviewers. Some will be harder than others, but they're still all generally accepting that the data that you're trying to publish is verified. That it's not like you're trying to publish something that's false or more likely, most likely to be false. But the problem is most published data is highly cherry picked. It's representative data. It's not, you know, it's not a true representation of what's, what's actually being done. And so you've got this process that, you know, it's supposed to be about actually reviewing and critiquing data and publishing that, which is, you know, upholds a high standard. But when you concede right from the front that there, you know, there's no validation of the data that there, you know, and, and the fact that there's biases based on the vested interests of the journals to publish certain data or not publish other data. I mean, the best example I can get, or, you know, I could give is really to tell people, go and look and see how many articles you can find, especially let's say just within COVID of negative data being published. You just don't find it anymore because it's not in anybody's interest. There's no motivation to publish anything that, that goes counter to everything. everything. Everybody's trying to publish something that can make their lab, their company, their whatever, look good, give them an advantage. It's all about competing, publishing papers um, is a huge driver for largely academic grant funding. But even in industry, publishing papers is a big deal. We've, I've been at companies where you have these really aggressive goals to get multiple papers published by the end of the year. And you start out the year without even having all the data and it, it creates a really weird situation where you're trying to write a paper without before you have all the data and then you're backfilling and and that's not science. No, but definitely. then you know you cobble this Franken thing together and you submit it and it goes through this process and they they have no idea what you've done. They're just like I said, they're accepting it for review with the understanding that you've already vetted the data, the findings. They're just trying to see if what you put in there, you know, roughly um, 
the data roughly backs up the conclusions you're making, but nobody's checking on the validity of anything. And that, and that to me is one of the biggest flaws because we've clearly seen that so much of it can be, is neither not valid or is more likely to be false. And, um, I mean, there's, there's probably lots of other more issues with peer review than even I'm thinking of. There's people that have spent a lot of time really digging into this problem because it is a huge issue. Um, and I've seen it, you know, as someone who's published papers and who's gone through the process and, you know, and, and just been surprised at, at how it works. But to think that peer review is something that it's kind of like anointing a paper or finding like, oh, it's gone through the peer review process. Therefore, you know, it's it's blessed for acceptance or something like it's it's anything but that. But most scientists, unfortunately, will accept published preclinical data at at face value just because it's been been published. Well, I think for me, <clears throat> um, at least one good thing that came out of COVID, I guess, is that it kind of it, it kind of opened my eyes up to what is a peer-reviewed article and what it means for the scientific community, not in the terms of what you just described. But I think the first time that I ever really understood what it was or heard about it was when Fauci was coming out with peer-reviewed articles about COVID. And he was saying some very sketchy things, or not sketchy, but uh, things that would make you think that COVID was just like, um, like the flu almost. I think is in one of his peer-reviewed articles, he said it was very similar to the flu. And people, you know, conspiracy people are like, oh, well, it's just the flu then, you know. But I, I think for me, the biggest one was when I think his name's Dr. Paul Thomas out in Oregon. He was a pediatrician. And, you know, he had came out with his 10 to 15-year study and his findings. And that's a, that's, that's a pretty long period of time with vaccinated patients versus unvaccinated patients. And... They took his license away. They took his practice away, you know, just because, and he wasn't even suggesting that autism was the cause of vaccines. He was just saying that's what his, kind of what his study found, you know, and it just didn't fit the narrative, I guess, is, is kind of what you were saying. It didn't fit the peer-reviewed people's agenda. So there's that biasness there where they're like, hey, this this isn't what we want. Sorry, dude, you can't even practice anymore. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, they've been canceling scientists and doctors for a long time if you, if they don't you know, do the work, if you don't do the work that is acceptable to those funding it, or, you know, you try to publish things that go against the, you know, the uh, consensus science, then you you will get canceled. And usually it's just, okay, you won't get funding, you won't get a lab space, you won't get a this or that, you won't get a, you know, you'll be blacklisted or whatever. I mean, but that's been happening for a long time, because that's, that's the game. And if you, you know, you could write, um, you know, a, a grant to do anything you want to investigate all, you know, things about vaccines or whatever. And if, if it's not what, I mean, again, most grants, most academic funding is coming from NIH grants from the government. Well, they're not going to want you investigating that stuff. So of course they're going to deny it. And, you know, so what, what, what course of action do you have? If you want to be a scientist in that space, you have to do what's going to get you the money and keep your lab going. And it, I mean, it's a terrible system. So were you able to, I guess, let's just kind of get into your work a little bit. Um, so during COVID and, and those types of things, so um, virology is something that you've, you've obviously had experience with, but so are you testing these vaccines? Are you seeing what they are, what they're about, what they do or any of that type of stuff? No, I was never in, well, I, I guess I shouldn't say never, but I, I, so I studied viruses 
at the beginning of my career, um, one of my first jobs was in an HIV research lab, um, a lab of a pretty highly respected infectious disease doctor who studied at NIH under Fauci. And, um, and then I did some more, I supported some virology projects when I got into industry and pharma, but um, I haven't worked in virology in a while and I never directly was involved in any developing of vaccines. I did, we did do a vaccine study when I was doing HIV research, but it wasn't anything like the stuff. Um, this was like a monkey study and it was, it didn't work. <laughs> right. But, um, so do you, so whenever you, so sorry, just when you say that, what does that mean? So like you're, you're looking under a tele or under a, you know, you're, you're looking at the virus, the HIV virus allegedly. Right. Um, so what does that look like or what is it or how does that process even work? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Is that I think a lot of people and people have said this to me or asked me about this and thinking like, well, if somebody says, if I'm a scientist or whatever, and I say that I'm, that I found this new virus, that it means I'm, I can take it. I can take patient samples, put it under a microscope and I can see it. The problem is that's not possible because really, because the size of the, the particle, these we're talking about particles that are in what's called um, the nanometer range. These are literally, they have a diameter, meaning across the particle, it's a hundred nanometers or less. This is considered to be sub microscopic, meaning you can't see it under a normal conventional light microscope. So you have to use something like an, an electron microscope, meaning you can't see it just, you know, readily in, you know, in a live state, you have to do lots of things to it and, and then visualize it like that. It's not something you can readily see just from a, you know, fluids of a patient. So it's, um, it's, I mean, I never, I never, you know, you can't just directly look under a microscope and see these things, whether it was when I was doing HIV research or when somebody's looking for, you know, SARS-CoV-2 or something like, it's just not, it's a huge limitation to science that this is a particle or supposedly a particle that, you, you know, is, is of a size that you have to use different technologies and that in itself doesn't you can just gauge whether you've you have a sample that has certain particles that appear to look like what you think they are but then you have to do other things to to fully vet that out so if you were to take a patient before or a monkey i guess in this situation uh before they had hiv and and then look at it under a microscope and look at it and then once they contract hiv under a microscope, is it still the same? Does it still look the same? Um, a monkey. Ha well, like I, I, I think that is that what you said? Like that's the experience you had with HIV. You were drawing blood from a monkey that had had, had contracted it. Oh, so no. So what we were what we were doing was, um, we were creating this vaccine that was against what we believe to be a part of the HIV genome that was less likely to, to mutate and, and escape. So the thing with HIV is it's supposed to be a, what's called a retrovirus, which means it's an RNA virus that is converted back to 
DNA, cDNA, undergoes this process, the genome uh, of reverse transcription, that process is highly error prone. The enzyme that is called reverse transcriptase that converts it from RNA back to DNA is has a very high error rate. So it creates errors, which are which are effectively seen as mutations. And there are the, the idea is that there's supposedly certain parts of the genome that are more prone to these errors than others. And so we picked an area that we thought would be less prone and created a vaccine based on that. And I won't go into the, that because it's just it's hard to explain, but we used a specific vaccine strategy that we created this and you know, designed around this particular sequence and immunized the animals repetitively, raised what we perceived to be a specific response, um, evaluating their T cells to that sequence to this vaccine, and then exposed them to the virus. Now, one of the things is you don't, um, if you're studying HIV on animals, you can't like you have to have a specific virus for the animal that you're studying. So you have to actually create. Um, in this case, it's a simian version, which means monkey, and then it has to be specific even for the subspecies, the type of monkey that you're using. And then even then, it doesn't. What happens when you? Um, expose the monkey to that, it doesn't in any way mimic what is supposed to happen with HIV. Like the monkey doesn't get AIDS. I mean, you might see some things that are, you know, similar with respect to like T cell effects, but it's, it looks more like a very acute toxicity thing. The, the timeline and the what happens is very fast. It's not at all like what is supposedly occurring with HIV, where it's this very long, slow process, and eventually, years later, you you wind up with AIDS. Um, so it's I don't know. I I I never really liked that model because I didn't think it really was a valid comparison between what's supposed to happen in the human and that's what you're supposed to be doing when you're studying something in an animal. But we challenged the animals, and unfortunately, there was with the virus after immunizing them and probably didn't there, was no, turn. there was no protection. We, I mean, that's, that's unfortunate, but I mean, yeah, that, that, that's just part of the process that animals have to go through, or at least some of them, you know, through clinical trials and stuff like that. But, um, so in general, do you think that vaccines, you know, in the early, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, to your knowledge, were, were they effective? Were they actually doing what they were supposed to be doing on human beings? compared to now? Because we know we're entering a landscape where allegedly, we're, from what I've heard, um, mRNA vaccines will be in all vaccines. I don't know how true that is, but. It's it's certainly looking like it. And now these companies are like Moderna and Pfizer. They're basically using the coronavirus vaccines as a proof of concept. So before that, Moderna had been working on mRNA technologies. That's their whole thing, right? Mod modified, like their company originally was modified at RNA or something, and then they changed it to Moderna, meaning modified. It's all about modifying RNA and using it as a therapeutic. They tried to find, to prove that concept out. They 
did went into pre, uh, sorry clinical studies on uh, cancer and some rare diseases and ran into massive toxicity issues, the process to gain regulatory approval with a therapeutic is different than a vaccine, though. So by pivoting and developing it as a vaccine, they were able to get over some of those hurdles that they otherwise couldn't have. And now they've said, oh, we've got proof of concept that this stuff works and it's safe and it's effective, right? And so now we can use it for all vaccines and we can use it for other things now too, which if if they would have had to stay and go the way of a therapeutic, they would have never gotten approval. Um, And of course you have prior to COVID, you know, the conventional vaccines previously were were different. There's different modalities, but I mean, this was the first time we had this kind of usage of this mRNA or really any kind of like um, a genetic component like this where you're going to get the body to try to make a protein that then the body will <clears throat> generate immunity against that. Previously, it was always attempting to use you know, some form of the pathogen, right, to, to elicit the, the response and build up the immunity. But if you look at the data, like, you know, I, I, I mean, if you look at, like, with um, polio, measles, you know, things like that, and you look at, like, the mortality over time, and when these vaccines were introduced, what you see is that the mortality was already coming down when the vaccines were introduced. So everybody wants to say that, you know, that it's the vaccines in these cases, especially with like polio and measles and things like these are the most vaccine preventable, you know, deaths and illnesses. You must vaccine vaccinate against these or else. Except for the, the, the data actually suggests that there was more likely to be other factors that reduced the mortality to whatever was causing these things than the actual vaccines and the vaccines were not, they weren't not toxic either. I mean, they had very toxic components. They weren't, just because they weren't mRNA doesn't mean that they were safe or anything like that. That All vaccines have what is called um, an adjuvant and it's a toxic component that is used to create inflammation that then drives the supposed immune response against whatever you're immunizing with. But the problem is it's really toxic stuff. It's heavy metals. It's, you know, aluminum, mercury, things like that, that they, that are put in there to, to drive this. And you might ask, well, why, if, if you're putting a form of the, the virus or whatever in there, why isn't that sufficient enough for the body to recognize that and say, Hey, I, you know, this is foreign. I can raise an immune response. Why do I have to put all this other toxic junk in there that, leads to other problems. And, and I don't know, it's a good question, but, um, well, I think, the, you know, I think, yeah. I think the answer and we all know it is follow the money <laughs> and big pharma is a very big part of, of American culture. And they, they create, I mean, I don't know if they create diseases, but they profit off diseases. So, I mean, which, I mean, whichever one, whichever ladder you want to go. Um, but I mean, I think that's clearly the answer, but so in, in knowing this, Mike, and and I'm not saying you saw it just right off the bat because you've been doing it for such a long time. Like, man, like if you if you like this, how, how did you say it? Ad, adju, adjunct, 
or adjuvant adjuvant like knowing that and seeing that and like did you know at the time it was very harmful to be injected into humans and like how was the, how did the process go for you to finally be like damn like do these, these things aren't safe um you know for a long time i i i admit i bought into a lot of the stuff you know even i i i think i was naive naive and I saw problems with science and I saw a lot of issues I saw where where there was a lot of laziness and bad data and so but I and I just kind of naively thought well we just have to clean these things up and it's not really that they're creating you know these huge problems but then as I got more and more into it and I realized this 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 goes a lot farther and you know I I, I never until more recently like really dove into you know, what was in these things and what was, and once I started to understand it, it was just like, you couldn't avoid it. Like, you're like, why does this stuff need to be in there? And why do we, why do we not believe that that can cause a problem? And I mean, there are all of these horrible adverse effects that happen to people yet. Now the, the pharma companies have blanket immunity and, you know, I mean, the more you start to see, the more you start to go, oh, wow, well, this really doesn't make any sense. And why, why would we? And then, you know, I have young kids and I, you know, if you go and you look at their immunization records, you know, you, you want to throw up as a parent because it's just it's just insane. And you're like, how did I ever do this? And I, I will never do it again. I can say that much. But I'm right there with you, man. Yeah. It's crazy that people just they get in line for it. But right. Um, so. You said like towards the end of, of, of your, of working where you worked, um, you were working on, um, you know, can't, or working on not necessarily, is it curing cancer or having a response to cancer or benefiting people that had cancer? Yeah. The, the idea was to trigger the immune system to attack the cancer. So a, a treatment more than, I mean, people might want to, nobody in pharma really likes the, the C word because that would put you out of business. Right. <laughs> But so, sure. like, but so is it almost similar, like the, the ingredients that you're working with, um, or is it completely different types of ingredients that you're working with from compared to vaccines to trying to treat pa patients with cancer? Um, it's, there are some similarities, but it's, so with what I was doing, we were, it's an antibody. So it's a large protein, you know, this is a protein, um, you don't have like those adjuvants and stuff like that, but there's, there's certainly problems with these antibodies because there's people want to claim that it's a better, um, treatment than chemotherapy, which I mean, I guess anything is truly better than that because it's so horrific and it doesn't do anything. But, um, even these antibody treatments, these immunotherapies that have been touted as like the next greatest thing, in cancer are, are not nearly as effective as the, what the way that they're presented. And there are still horrific side effects. Um, so, you know, there it's, it's not the same, same thing as what's a vaccine, but it's also different than, so chemotherapeutics and, um, what is normally referred to as pharmaceutical drugs or medicines are like these small molecule chemicals. That's different than uh, a biologic, which is like a protein and antibody that's something like that. It's used as a, as a treatment. And so what I was doing 
was developing antibodies, um, again, which the idea is to, in some way, engage a component of the immune system and either activate it or target it to the tumor or something. It, it, it all looks great on paper if you believe this stuff, but it just, it's never really borne out. I mean, even though people have gotten excited about certain things in clinical trials, but when you really dig into it, it it's really not, it's really not much of anything. It's just very small signals and it's not very durable and the side effects and stuff are horrific. And, you know, and they get excited over buying people, you know, a couple months, uh, you know, of horrific uh, pain, but yet, you know, so for like, you, that's not a <laughs> right. No, that's definitely not a good thing. But so for you, is it like you're, 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 I don't know how, like how the workspace looked like, but you had your, 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 your table or whatnot and you're wearing your white jacket. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to picture it and you have like, you know, a syringe and you're just like kind of mixing some, like a cocktail to try and create, uh, trying to, uh, help people with cancer. But so what you're saying is like, do you, do you get like a, a list of a, a piece of paper and it has a, just a list of ingredients that have been tested for this certain type of cancer? And you're like, Hey, I'm just going to try and mix these ones up a few times. And then I'm going to, you know, put it in a blood sample with cancer. Like, how does that process work? Yeah. So in the lab, if you're doing what's called in vitro testing development, it's, it's, you're usually using cell lines. It's either that, or you do what's called in vivo, which means in life which is animal studies, typically in cancer, that's mice that you're using. Um, I've done both and, but largely in the lab using these cell lines, which really don't mimic cancers or, or anything. It's a really bad model. And, um, you know, now most science scientists are coming around to admit that bo both of them, whether you're talking about the, the cell lines or the animal models, neither is predictable of what's going to happen when you go into a, a human clinical trial, which means even though you ha still have to do these things to check the boxes to get regulatory approval to go into the trial, you're basically going in blind. We don't, we're, we're not doing very much of anything in the preclinical development process that accurately predicts what's going to happen, which is terrible, but it's, it's true. And, um, but so to answer your question, so in the lab, um, you know, we were developing a specific drug. So we had identified a specific target that we were thought was relevant for certain types of cancer. And we generated an antibody that, um, you know, we believe specifically interacted with that target. And when that happened, it interacted with certain immune cells and would activate them to target and attack the cancer was, was the idea. And so we were just, there are different ways that you can make up, you can generate antibodies. And when you make them as drugs, it, it gets more and more complicated from early discovery stage as you go up to development when you get an actual drug product. Um, but then you're just basically testing that stuff different antibody preparations on these cell lines and seeing if you're having an effect, there's different kinds of um, experiments that you can do. You can ask, does the drug do something directly to the cells? Or when I put and do these co-cultures with different immune cells that you think are important, that you think that are 
being activated and you know you can try to create a situation where you can visualize whether they're attacking the cancer cells when you have the antibodies there and then you can look at you can actually look at other drugs that are used to treat these kinds of cancers and attempt to pair them up because what what they're finding too is that most of these drugs are not sufficient enough even though they're insanely toxic but by themselves so they're trying to do all these combinations usually two pairing two drugs together or sometimes even more and seeing if you can then enhance the effects and to try to get a better response but i don't know it's kind of a it's kind of a crapshoot i mean it's all so toxic and i mean i i just don't even really I, I don't know. I mean, I've started to kind of back away from that whole idea of that being a valid way to treat cancer because right. it's just so toxic. For sure. So <clears throat> two things to that. Um, one, did you ever fear, looking back now, like, did you ever fear for your life? Like, man, being around these chemicals, being exposed to it, being around them, like, that's dangerous, man. Mm -hmm. And I know you probably didn't think about it at the time, but just like looking back, I'd be like, man, like I was exposed to a lot of bad stuff. Mm hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we take, well, I, I mean, there are definitely a lot of people that are a lot more careless than you might think, but I always took a lot of precautions. Um, and for the most part, there are, there are precautions that are things that are put in place in labs to try to, um, minimize risk. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's up to the individual scientists that how, you know, how, how careful you're really going to be and how, um, and I always try to be careful, but yeah, I mean, it's always a concern, especially when you're doing experiments with chemotherapeutic agents or things like that, that are just so insanely toxic. I mean, I guess I would say the, the, the upside of that is you tend to be working with very small quantities. So it's not like you're, you know, working with like a huge jug of <laughs> chemicals, like it's these small vials that, you know, and you're transferring small quantities, but if you're not careful, you can still have it, you know, be exposed to it. So yeah, I mean, twenty years, still, of, twenty years of doing it, the there, there's definitely slight odds that you know something terrible could happen or something bad over time could happen. But yeah, yeah, or you know, a lab, a lab leak theory, you know, like like COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so and I, I don't know, man. This is all fascinating stuff. It just is. It's I'm trying to think of where I want to go with it next because. I know you get into, I don't know how deep you, I, you've get, gotten into germ theory, but I think, are you more along the lines now of, of more of a holistic approach? Um, just there's natural ways to do it. I know like for me, like with how you just described them making drugs to try and, uh, you know, cure cancer or, or treat it or whatever it is. It almost seems like Western society and American culture want you to have that, you know, our American diet, mm -hmm. the things that we subject ourselves to. I've never lived, I've, I've been here for 34 years. I've never really had a, a good stretch of just being as healthy as possible as I could ever imagine. And it's just a lot of wear and tear on the body that we put with these GMOs and what they put in our food and what's in the skies. And it's just, it's, it's almost like they create it. So we have to take these drugs. So I, I guess is, is a more holistic approach, the way to go. Well, I think it's, for me, it's taking an approach that focuses on one singular thing and ignores everything else that we're being bombarded with is at the least short-sighted to just boil it down to one thing and not 
take into account all of these other factors and all of this other stuff we're exposing ourselves to. Like, how can you, how can you not do that? And especially with respect to drugs, I mean, I learned, um, in a, in a graduate level pharmacology class, this is studying the, you know, action of, of drugs and kind of, um, what the, what the body, how the body responds to drugs and how the drug responds to the body and stuff like that, all these different things about the, the mechanisms of drugs and stuff. And I was literally, the professor told us that what doctors do more often than not is they'll prescribe one drug. And then when inevitably you have a side effect or what I would just call an effect, because I don't see that there's truly side effects because it's just, it's a toxic chemical. I mean, it's going to have multiple effects. These things are not truly specific or targeted in any way. So when you have the effect, most doctors, instead of saying, oh, I wonder if that was from this drug that I put you on, they just say, okay, it's something they, you know, it's something new and they prescribe another drug to treat that new symptom or set of symptoms. And it just keeps going in a vicious cycle until you're on all of these different drugs and have all these crazy things going on. And that's insane. I mean, to think that that's going to bring health, all it really does is bring profits to the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, how that gets you to health, I don't understand. And, you know, through developing drugs for such a long time and seeing how they're developed and seeing how it's, you know, it, it's an insane amount of time and money that's invested into drug development. But at the same amount of time, you are only able to really evaluate it in a pretty narrow way. You can't look at every single interaction that the drug has, every single thing that it does. You, you, you still have a pretty narrow, you know, limited amount of time and resources, even at a big company to evaluate these things. And so you pick and choose what you think, you know, the whole idea is like, can I pick up on something that's going to cause like acute, massive acute issues that's going to kill our clinical trial or something, or keep us from getting into a clinical trial. So like, you know, you don't want to kill someone right away. I, you know, or whatever, like, but short of that, like there's so much that you don't know, but what we do know is that the great multitude of drugs, especially, well, really all of them, the, whether you're talking about antibodies, large molecule protein drugs, or the small molecule chemicals, they're all highly promiscuous and can react with lots and lots of different things. We're told, oh, this just targets, this is a drug that targets X. And so it can be used to treat, you know, this disease, but that's, that's an absurdity. These drugs can't target in that specific and narrow of a way. And, but yet we've come to believe that we can go in like and use these drugs in a very precise manner, but it just doesn't work that way because largely because they're all the way that they are taken into the body and they're distributed sy systemically so that they are available to all sorts of different kinds of tissues and things. And they interact with lots of different things throughout the body and they have impacts in all of those different places. And, you know, if you're sick and not healthy, like in different ways, like I, how is it possible that treating yourself with these kinds of drugs that are not specific for anything 
is going to bring about health, especially when if you factor in, if you're able to look at all of these other things. Although on the flip side, it is so easy. We've become so over-reliant on and wanting to fix things fast. Oh, I can just take this pill. I can relieve this symptom. I don't have to have any responsibility for my lifestyle, my behavior. I can just take this, relieve the symptom, move on, go to the next thing. And that's what a lot of people, especially in the West, U.S., want to do. But that doesn't really equate with true health. So, yeah, I, I don't know. No, I think I think for me, I always wonder what it, the United States was like before Rockefeller medicine um, back in you know the 1800s and how they treated things. I think that may, they say people's lifespans weren't as long and stuff like that. But man, I almost think that they obviously were healthier. There was no McDonald's. There was no Burger King. They were eating from the land. The food wasn't being injected with anything. Um, so maybe there was less disease. Um, I know that there were some, you know, probably some hygiene issues that would cause disease or cause virus. I don't, I have no idea. But the only thing that I could say, man, with modern medicine is, so I have a, a cousin who's been on dialysis for multiple years. You know, he's born with, um, one of his kidneys were like extremely small or something like that. Hmm. And um, he's been on a transplant list, you know, for quite a while now. I think he has to do some things to get to actually get on the list and get a new kidney. But I think that at least from what I'm told or what I see is that treatment has helped him survive a duration of time. Yeah. And that's, and that's great. I mean, I'm not against all treatments, especially, you know, I think the, the system is very good for, you know, emergency treatment, treatment, life-saving treatments like that, where, you know, if you don't do something, if you don't intervene, you're, it's not going to just naturally resolve itself. I mean, in that case, like if you did nothing, it's not like the kidney's just going to heal itself and resume normal function. I mean, there's a clear physical impairment. So you need that intervention to, but in a lot of other cases, we intervene, we are prescribed drugs and things where, you know, we never really ask, do we really need this intervention? Are we, are we, are there other things that we could do? Are we actually giving our bodies what they truly need to, to heal themselves, to, to do what they need to do? Or are we just continue to augment with more stuff to just intervene and, you know, because we don't want to have to think about it or take responsibility for what we do. And, you know, but that's entirely different than, if you have, you know, there's a lot that our system is really good with emergency, acute trauma that, I mean, you, you can't just heal things naturally easily. I mean, I guess you probably could learn to do, to do it, but I mean, it's not something that's readily available to most people. Right. I almost feel like at this point, like the FDA and Big Pharma are like in cahoots because... You look at like the ingredient list and, and you know, you, when you go shopping, it would be impossible to look at the back of the box, read the ingredients for every single item that you want to buy because you'd be there for hours. But it almost seems like they're in, in bed together, man, because a lot of this information is coming out, like especially with food dye, natural flavors. I mean, all these other things where, where, where if you go to Europe, none of these things exist. You know, in Doritos, there's no such thing as food dye. And, you know, I had a buddy who recently just went to Europe and he's like, dude, He's like the fast food, like the McDonald's, the Burger King. He's like, it just doesn't taste as good. He's like, it just doesn't taste good at all. He's like, so, but he's like, it wasn't really even that busy. And I, was, and it just makes sense. It's like they put these things in our food to create disease, so that big pharma comes in, 
and they have the treatment for it and it's going to only make you worse or have you, or you have another effect that you have to take another drug for like you just described. Dude, that's the biggest, best Ponzi scheme that they've created in modern history. Yeah, I mean, kudos to them. They've really figured out a way to keep us dependent and and sick. I, I just actually, I, I've only realized, I, I forget where I found that out, but what you're talking about, how the differences in the ingredients in the food in between the U.S. and places like Europe, that blew me away. That, And once you see that, it's like, how can that be you know, not anything but intentional. Like why else would you do that and not ha- and have those things knowing what we now know about a lot of those ingredients that are in the food here, that they're so toxic and other places are like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Like, I mean, it's almost like how, how can you possibly not see that as some kind of attempt to keep us sick and so that we keep keep going back, revolving door of the doctor's offices. Oh, I got this new ailment doc give me something quick to fix it and now doctor's offices are like uh it's like drive-through medicine they go in they they don't even really diagnose they just pick a code of something prescribe you in and out in like 15 minutes or less it's like <laughs> fast food medicine fast food food fast food every, everything we do is like boom 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 we got to just go 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 yeah for sure and I, we're getting close to the end of the hour man I, I, and again i appreciate your time mike for coming on man it's been a, been an amazing time and would love to have you on again in the future if you have the time because, dude, there's so many other things yeah. I want to pick your brain on. Um, but just two two or three quick things, like, so to, to attest to that, you know, when we were pregnant a couple about – so Callum's like a year and three months. Um, and we had seen the same OBG for, for, for our first two kids. Um, my wife did an all-natural birth the second time. Um, and then the third time we did an all-natural birth at home. So that was really cool. And the reason we did that was because um, with Callum, when we went and saw our OBG, the first thing he said, are you going to get the COVID uh, vaccine to my wife? And, you know, at that point on our journey, we're like, we don't need this. You know, we'll find a good midwife and we'll just do it at home all natural. And that's exactly what we did. It's a beautiful thing. That's that's awesome. Yeah. So, okay. So just a quick, couple quick uh, rapid fire questions. So in 20 years and we talk about big pharma and you talked about earlier, you said the big guys or whatever that is, the people at the top of the food chain in the, in the science community. Do you ever, do you ever have any interactions with those types of people? Um, well, I mean, when I, so in pharma, it's hard. You're very, very siloed. Like, you know, it's, you only kind of have exposure to a certain level. You never really get any accessibility to anybody at, you know, a really high level, but it's different in biotech. So I did have interactions with all the way up through to, you know, the CEO, the CSO, the, you know, the C-suite, the executive leadership investors. Um, it's, it's kind of blew me away how entirely different it is with that respect that, um, with a uh, with pharma, you know, you are so siloed. But in biotech, you you do see a lot more. Still not. I mean, I don't. It's not like you have the ability as a scientist. You're 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 down there doing the grunt work. You're not. I mean, I don't think scientists are really have a lot of ability to influence much. But you you do see a lot more, and you do you're exposed to more and interact with that level more. Okay. Yeah, I was just trying to just curious on just like how they are as people. I know that they're people just like you and I, but they're definitely more aggressive. They're all about profits. They want more and more and more. 
Um, I've, I've never really been around those types of people. So just kind of curious about that is all. No, you're right. Highly, yeah. Highly motivated by, by profits and, uh, whatever it takes to get there, make the drug. How do I present the drug, make it as valuable as possible? I mean, it's all driven by, and of course the people providing the money, the investors or whatever, it, it, it drives everything. And it, that becomes the impetus for what a lot of people do in, in industries just listen to what they, you know, the people with the money want. And of course that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's not how you do science, but that's what it becomes. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to leave it to you with this man. Last question. Uh, we talked briefly before the podcast about how in, in Missouri, they're going to potentially be giving MRNA vaccine to cattle, to pigs, those types of things. Um, to your, to your knowledge, if, if that's the case and they do inject these animals, and I know that they already do with like antibiotics and other types of vaccines, we would be inject, ingesting those types of vaccines ourselves if we're eating those animals. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. You'd have to do some kind of studies to prove that that wasn't occurring. Otherwise, I think you'd have to assume you have to kind of assume anything you're giving to an animal is going to get passed on to some degree if when you're when you're ingesting it yourself, I mean, and to conclude or assume otherwise, you know, you have, you'd have to study it and figure out what, what's, ha what's happening when you give it. And then, you know, if you're cooking it and eating it or however you're preparing it, I mean, I think the safest bet would be to, if, if at all possible to just stay away from it. Yeah. Yeah. That, which would be tough. I guess you grow your own cattle, grow your own, or not grow your own cattle, but have your own cattle, have your own chickens, those types of things. Crazy world we live in, Mike, man. But uh, how yeah. can how can people find you? How can uh, they reach out to you if they enjoyed the podcast? Yeah, thank you. So um, I am on uh, Twitter, at Mike Donio. I have a Substack. It's called Still in the Storm. So stillinthestorm.substack.com. Uh, I'm going to be launching a new project soon called Science Defined. Um, you can either get more information about that uh, on my Twitter or you go to sciencedefined.com. Mark on, and so you're, you you haven't written a book yet. Is that something you've kind of thought about? Or are you going to do or no? I've, yeah, I'm tempted. I've been asked about that. Um, and I definitely like the idea of doing that. It's just a matter of uh, finding the time. But I, I think it'd be a good, I, I really like that idea. Cool, man. Well, thanks for joining Talk Junkies. We'll chat again sometime soon, sir. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you. You're welcome. Cheers.